So we are in a series this summer called Backstory, and Backstory is looking at the Psalms, and we're going to worship through the Psalms, we're reading through the Psalms, and we're also looking at passages from the Old Testament that correlate to the Psalm that we are reading. What's cool is that the Psalms are written by real people in real history who experienced real things. King David wrote many of the Psalms, and we have a lot of story about King David. And so we can see kind of the, the circumstances of his life that were going on, and then see the songs and the poems that he was writing about that experience. King David wasn't the only author of the Psalms. There were other ones as well. And um, today we are looking, we're going to look at Psalm 46. But before we do that, uh, we're going to look at the backstory and see what was one of the possible circumstances of what was going on in Israel's life that correlates to then this psalm, this poem and song that was used in worship. And so we're going to take a look first at 2 Chronicles 19 and 20. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to. If you want to look on your phones, you're welcome to. If you just want to listen to me read it, you're welcome to as well. We're going to do a flyover of those two chapters and just kind of look at what's going on pretty quickly. And then we're going to spend the remainder of our time in Psalm 46, using that to, to pray and to worship and to interact with God. But we wanted to give the backstory so you can see one of the mighty ways that God worked um, that this psalm came from. So Second Chronicles, it's in the first part of your Bible, probably the first third or so. Uh, and Second Chronicles tells a bit of a story of the nation of Israel's history. And so it recounts different historical events that happened. It looks at the lives of kings and the rise and fall of Israel as they were faithful to God's covenant or unfaithful. And so here we have a king that was sort of faithful, and his name was King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Uh, in 19, he's just coming back from an ill-advised war with uh, some folks that were in rebellion to God. Uh, he participated with them and joined in with the kingdom of Israel that was in rebellion to God. This was the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, uh, working together, and they shouldn't have been. King Jehoshaphat, they got beat. He returns to Jerusalem, and Jehu, the son of Hanai, the seer, who was one of the prophets, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the sacred poles out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So the prophet says to him, it was ill-advised, it was a mistake to go out and join forces with this team that hates God or is in active rebellion to him, but God still appreciates the fact that you got rid of idolatry in the land, and in your heart, even though you're making some mistakes, you are setting your heart to seek God. 
And so out of that sort of rebuke and encouragement, stop joining forces with bad people, and God really does appreciate that you got rid of idolatry and um, are seeking him with your heart, Josephat uh, resided in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought back, brought them back to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And so he begins a reform project because of their accidental joining with uh, people who are in rebellion of God and decides to bring justice into the land and honor God. He appointed judges in the land and fortified all the cities of Judah city by city and said to the judges, consider what you are doing for you judge not on behalf of human beings, but on the Lord's behalf. He is with you in giving judgment. Now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care with what you do, for there is no, so that there is no perversion of justice with the Lord or partiality or taking of bribes. Then he sets some other leaders over uh, Israel as well and charges those other leaders to say, this is how you shall act in the fear of the Lord and faithfulness and with your whole heart. Whenever a case comes before you from your kindred who live in their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statues or ordinances, then you shall instruct them so that they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come on you and your kindred. Do so and you will not incur guilt. Uh, and he says, deal courageously and may the Lord be with the good. And so he basically institutes justice throughout the land. He charges the judges uh, in Israel to uh, be faithful to God's law, to help administrate it well, and to help the people live in the goodness of God's covenant. Backstory part one. What's exciting is as he instructs them to live in the goodness of God's covenant is the next thing that happens, he's trying to faithfully serve God and the next thing that happens is looks like disaster in 2 Chronicles 20. Have you ever been in a situation where you have sincerely tried to start serving God, to start doing what is right, to um, follow him, maybe even repenting from some sin that was out of place in your life or um, trying to enact, you know, be more serious about your faith or to walk with God or to stop doing something bad or start doing something good. And then we're met with immediate resistance. And that's what King Jehoshaphat is faced with here. Starts trying to do something good, starts trying to institute the law of God, starts trying to live faithfully. And what we would think is right off the bat is, well, then he's going to be blessed and it's going to look good. But what happens we see in 20, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with some of them, the Menuhites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. Already they are at Hazazon Tamar, which is the Engedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, and from all the towns of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So basically, a bunch of nations showed up all at the same time in order to invade the land and pillage his kingdom, which seems radically unfair because he's just taking steps to follow God. And, uh, and then a whole multitude comes against them. 
What's cool is that Jehoshaphat then seeks the Lord in prayer to find victory. So Jehoshaphat in 25, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? They lived in it and in it have built you a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes on us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and save See now the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. They rewarded us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love this prayer. I think it is just amazing. They are faced with a hopeless situation. They are outnumbered. They're outmanned. Uh, They've got so many people coming against them. They have no idea what to do, so they come together before the Lord. And they do a couple things. They pray and remind God who he is. Are you, uh, O Lord God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. And so they look to God for who he actually is. And I think this is a great little aside from the main thing that we're doing, but we've got this awesome template for prayer that these guys are walking in. It, reminding God who he is. Are you not the God in heaven? Are you not completely powerful? Are you not the one who's actually in charge? We're not praying to a weak and insipid God. They're remembering who God is and what he has done in the past. And then they press into the promises that he had given them. Not only had he given them the land, but when Solomon uh, dedicated the temple, he prayed, you know, if disaster comes on us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we'll cry in our distress, and you will hear and save. And so here they are activating a promise of God as well. They're remembering God for who he was, and then they're looking at his promise that he will come and save when they come before him and cry out. And so they came before him and cried out. And they also uh, laid out their weakness. They said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think it's one of the most powerful prayers. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay, here we are. You're really good. You've made some promises. And I guess the part I didn't, and our situation is desperate. That we're faced with something we don't know how to deal with. It's bigger than us. We don't have the resources to come against it on our own. It is is frightening. It is life and death. And we don't know what to do. 
We are powerless against this great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So then we see what God does. He says, meanwhile, all of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Love the imagery here. They're sitting there with their children, their wives, their infants, knowing that if this marauding force comes in, that women and children are killed in these situations. They're standing there with like the desperate prayer of what they're trying to save. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite, and the sons of Asaph in the middle of the assembly. So here's another prophet that the spirit of the Lord came on. And he said this, he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will come up by the uh, ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley before the wilderness of Jeruel. This battle is not for you to fight. Take your position, stand still, and see the victory of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah in Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Korahites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord and the God of Israel with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets. And when they had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy splendor as they went before the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. So their battle plan was to go out and to worship the Lord. Which seems crazy in the face of this multitude, but they took God at his word. And he had spoken and said, the battle's not yours to fight. Take your position, stand, and see the victory of the Lord. And do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. And the 22, as they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come out against Judah, so that they were routed. For the Ammonites and Moab attacked the inhabitants of Mount Seir, Seir, destroying them utterly. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So basically what happened is they fought each other instead of Israel. Two of the teams went against another one and then they turned on each other. And it says, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked towards the multitude. They were corpses lying on the ground. No one escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take the booty from them, they found livestock in great numbers, goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They spent three days taking the booty because of its abundance. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakai 
for there they bless the Lord before the place that has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then all the people of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head returned to the Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord enabled them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. The fear of God came on all the kingdoms and the countries where the Lord had fought against the enemy of Israel. And the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, and God gave them rest all around. So we have this story of Jehoshaphat starts, and he makes a mistake in his kingdom, joins with an unfaithful kingdom, gets uh, beat up, loses a battle, comes back to the Lord, and is admonished to say, you know what, your heart's for the Lord, You're, uh, you tore down the idols, that's great, but you know what, you shouldn't partner with people who are in rebellion against the Lord. And he says, you know what, that's right, we're going to activate God's promises, we're going to be faithful to his covenant, we're going to install judges, and then massive resistance comes, and the land looks like it's going to be invaded, and they turn to the Lord and are amazingly delivered. And then they return to Jerusalem with joy. And so we'll see that Psalm 46, uh, it was a song of the Korahites who were named in this uh, psalm. And they, and so we're going to spend some time looking at this psalm. But instead of just looking at it and learning about it, we're going to spend some time interacting with it. And so we're gonna, I'm going to read it to us, and then we're going to take it in three sections and give you guys a chance to respond to it. Um, we'll have some music, and we'll have just specific prompts in it. So if you're a journaler, you can journal, or if you're not, we'll have a little bit of space to pray and to think about some specific things. So Psalm 46 says this. I'm sorry, that text is really small. The rest of the text isn't quite so small. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So we're going to look at the first section. And it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we, should not, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. 
And so we have an invitation here to think about all the things that we are afraid of. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though the, war, the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. I think there are a few psalms that speak so specifically to our time. And I think if we have an opportunity to be afraid of the climate around us and the earth with its changing, now is a time for that. So I don't know if you carry anxiety about a changing climate or crops not being able to be planted because of all the rain. I don't know if there's chaos abounding in your life or things that seem insurmountable. If everything seems to be shaking in your life or specific things are shaking that you're not sure how you're going to be able to get through. What's cool is we have the, it starts and says, God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. And then it lists some specific trouble. We don't need to fear though the earth is changing, though the mountains shake, though the waters roar and foam, chaos abounds, though the mountains tremble, and everything is shaking and quaking. So I want to give you some space to think about what is shaking, what are you afraid of, what are the places in your life where you need to run to the Lord. And what's cool is, as we have an opportunity to think about that for a minute, and Selah means pause. And so it says Selah right after the mountains tremble and it's tumult. It says Selah. So we can pause for a minute and we can think about that. So I want to give you just a couple minutes here to really consider what is it that's shaking? What is it that's changing? What is it that we need a refuge for and strength for? to consider our fears and to lay it down before the Lord. There's a promise attached to this too where it says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help when the morning dawns. So in the New Testament, we are called living stones. We are being built into a habitation for God, that we, his church, are the habitation of God, that we become the city of God where he dwells. And Jesus says there is living water that flows from the lives, from the hearts, from the bellies of believers, and that it will spring up towards eternal life. And so in the midst of all of the fears, in the midst of all of the trouble, in the midst of all of the need that we have, all of the areas that are fearful, it's matched with this promise of living water and God's presence with us in the midst of the trouble. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in times of trouble. 
And he's not just for the Christian. He's not just some distant help far away where we are trying to throw paper airplane prayers and hit him and see if he'll do something about it. But he is a very present help. He abides in our bodies. He makes his home with us. And his living water is available to flow forth from us because of his presence. And so, Lord, we pray in the midst of all of the areas that are very fearful, all of the areas where things are changing and shaking and uncertain, all of the things that are out of order, that have yet to be redeemed, where we are yet to be free, where we are not flourishing and where we are scared, God. We ask that you would be a very present help in that trouble that you would bring that living water, your living water, to the dry places in our lives, that you would bring the rock of your love to the places that seem like where our footing is crumbling. God, would you help firmly establish us on your love and in your life? Would you allow us to see your very present nature in every circumstance that we are facing. Come and behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. I don't know if there's a more apt verse for the political scene across the world. That alliances are fraying, that governments are falling, that it is just chaos all over the world. Kingdoms, whole nations are tottering, like Venezuela. You look at alliances falling apart, like NATO. You look at the rise of nationalism and the rise of globalism, and it just seems like a swirl of confusion all over the world. There are few places you can look politically and say, wow, they've got that going well. The UK can't form a government. Israel can't form a government right now. It's just chaos politically. So the nations are in an uproar. Christian persecution is growing and at an all-time high all over the world. The kingdoms totter. But he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and behold the works of the Lord. Look what he has done over history. Look at the Lord, how he has intervened over history. Look at what desolation of God looks like. To me, desolation of the Lord looks like peace. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And so, Lord, we want to look to you collectively today, and we want to hold up and pray that you would bring your desolation to this earth, God, that you would bring peace, that, God, you would make the wars stop, 
that you would bring an end to terrorism, that you would stop the wars all over this earth, and that you would bring peace. God, would you bring peace to governments? Would you bring peace to nations? God, would you burn shields? Would you break bows? Would you put an end to the endless violence that is sweeping the Middle East? Would you put an end to the famine that is harming so many? God, would you end corruption and restore justice in South America? God, would you end the anti-Christian movement in China? Lord, would you halt the growth of terrorism in the Philippines? God, would you bring an end to nationalism and racism in India? God, would you bring peace and unity to the nations? Would you bring your desolation that looks like peace? From the end of the earth, Lord, we want to see your peace come. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and bring your peace. Show us how to pray, Lord. Show us how to participate. Show us how to fight for justice. Show us how to stand up for the oppressed. Show us how to welcome the stranger. Show us how to love the widow and care for the orphan, Lord Jesus. Would you empower us to bring your desolation of peace? In Jesus' name. And the final section says, Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. What's brilliant here is when we read it backwards, there's this amazing invitation. He says, I am exalted in the earth. I am exalted in the nations. God is the God who reigns over everything. He says, I am God. And then he invites us to know him. He says, be still and know, know me. There's an invitation that we can know God. And in the understanding of who God really is, of his great power and his might and his nature, in our intimacy with him, that is why we can be still. So we can be still in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can be still in the knowledge that he is the transcendent creator of the universe and is ultimately in charge of all things, that he will be exalted in the earth, that he is with us and is our refuge. And I think the best place of seeing that is in Jesus and what he has done on the cross. He invites us into this intimate knowledge that he came and he died on the cross so that we may be connected to God and to know him personally. That he forgives our sins. He sets us free from sin. He covers over our death and gives us new life in the knowledge and, and intimacy with God. And so we can be still and because we know that he is God and that we can know God.